If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. From kaleidoscopic hellscapes to portraits of cannibals, Edward Brooke Hitching's new book, The Madman's Gallery, introduces readers to some of the strangest creations in art history. I asked him to take us on a tour around some of these scandalous and eccentric works, including a painting made with pigment coloured by mummified remains, artworks inspired by contacting the dead, and family portraits created by an algorithm. So the Madman's Gallery introduces readers to some of the weirdest, most curious, unconventional, eccentric artworks ever created. Why did you want to write a book bringing together all of these artistic oddities? I think it was because I'd written a book before called The Madman's Library, which took the same approach to the history of literature, looking for the strangest books and anything else that kind of pushed a definition of what a book was. But that was from growing up in a rare bookshop and realising that any object with a great story um, was an instant hook to a customer. You could take the dullest, most unappealing-looking, um, somber uh, leather binding, but if you told this amazing story behind it, um, the whole thing came alive and, and uh, people would become obsessed over it. And so that's what I've always loved generally about history is using objects, taking objects that are curiosities and using them as just these little doorways into pockets of history, some of which are very well known, but you can find a little side alley through of, of more surprising information, or things that have been completely forgotten about and are obscure. And what better world is there to explore in that way than the history of art? And the other thing that surprised me was I couldn't find a book that had done it, because it's such a vast subject that as a customer, I was searching strangest paintings, uh, greatest curiosities of art, and I couldn't find a book that had done it. Yeah, as you say, you're covering a vast swathe of times and places in this book. But could you give us a quick taster, really, of some of the stuff that we might be talking about today, some of the, the weird artistic oddities that you have uncovered in your research? Yeah, so it's all based on this philosophy of, you know, what is an eccentric? It's not someone who is trying to be strange. So a strange artwork to me is was not something that was made at the time by someone thinking, I'm going to really get some attention with this one. And it has to be something that has a great story to it. It has to be something that visually immediately hooks you. And you have to cover a huge amount of time. Otherwise, people will say, well, why did you miss out this century or this movement? And you also have to think, well, 
why are so many books European centric? Why are they, when the, the history of art, because it's so massive, people have to limit themselves. But if you do a general history, you can really skip around. So this moves from, say, prehistoric art and exploring just what it is, those um, Venus figurines, the Venus of Holfell, and those strange um, sort of shapely female figures. What is the story? What is the theory behind them? Because we're talking about art before the time of language when art is the language um so it's really fascinating to explore that kind of prehistoric imagination and try and apply modern instincts and ideas to to what might be an explanation and then we skip around the world so we look at um africa we look at inkisi power figures and how statues and figurines um, that are pierced with nails that look like something out of a Western horror movie are actually these incredibly powerful um, sources of um, collective memory. They serve as um, documents. Every pin that was stuck into these um, strange um, statues and animal figures, uh, each pin served as a as a a marker for an event in that community. Um, so it completely opens up and it destroys your preconceptions of what they are when you just look at it, you know, behind glass in a museum, for example. Um, and then of course you have to take in, uh, well, in a book of strange art, you have to have Hieronymus Bosch, you know, the Prince of strange, but you have to think, well, what is an interesting way of approaching Bosch that, you know, people won't have think, Oh, this has been done to death. So it's looking at some of his contemporary influences, trying to decode his strangest of strange paintings and figure out, okay, this, this looks alien. It just looks unrelatable. But if we pull it apart and just instead of using a critic's opinion as to what they think is going on, if you use a sort of historical detective's approach and you look at, you suddenly notice, well, that strange crystal structure is actually very similar to the baptismal font in his cathedral. And perhaps these strange demons that are blowing trumpets out of their backsides, we can relate to the marginalia of man manuscripts where he would have had access to the scriptorium of his local um, um, cathedral. And so you, you piece these things together and you look at modern research. Someone has, um, has, has managed to play the music that was written on the backsides of the bum notes of one of these demons. So all of this, you, you try and include the latest research as well as some of maybe the sort of more forgotten or, um, or perhaps the aspects that are viewed as a bit silly. I mean, I, I think they have carried just as much weight. Yeah, I mean, Bosch highlights a good point that people often say there's a very fine line between genius and madness. And a lot of these artworks really tread that line, don't they? Could you give us some other examples? Well, I think, yes, uh, words like madness and genius almost become irrelevant because there's there's something there. The whole point of art is to define and describe something that really words can't. And so now you're entering mindsets that are, it's like exploring a new universe. These are, these, you can't define any, um, any aspects of it. You have to just wander. You have to drift through it like an astronaut um, and just take in everything that you're seeing and realizing that there's a system at play in these mindsets that you will never understand. Um, and so you, you use art as a window into this, but maybe not as a portal um, to fully get to grips with it. You just get glimpses. I mean, one of my favorite characters is from, uh, he's an Australian folk hero that we don't know very much about um, here in England called Arthur Stace. And if you've been to Sydney, that's where you would have found, starting from around the early 1930s till as late as 1967, there was this extraordinary phenomenon where the word eternity 
would appear in, written in beautiful copper plate handwriting in chalk on pavements, on walls, tens of thousands of instances of this. And no one knew who was doing it starting in the 1930s. And, and 10 years later, no one had caught the person who was doing it. It was, it would appear overnight. And it turned out to be, um, um, this, this gentleman named um, Arthur Stace, who had been given a really rotten start in life, um, had joined the army but had been discharged and he had, had nothing and had nowhere, had no purpose. And he had been uh, passing a church and he, he listened to the sermon and the preacher was hammering the lectern saying, eternity, 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 about the, the promises of the rewards of the next life. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was epiphany for Stace. And so despite the fact that apparently he was illiterate, couldn't write his own name he he learned how to write eternity beautifully and spent pretty much the rest of his life trying to spread this message so that's obviously that's not madness and it's not i don't know if it's a kind of genius but it's a singular mindset that i completely admire and and obsess with it's such a wonderful story so um the book is an attempt to um really cram as many of those of my favorite stories in using art as an excuse really yeah, completely. And if you flick through the book, so I have it in front of me. I mean, many of the images in here are, are the really arresting. They grab you immediately. But there are some which look fairly standard, but actually have some interesting stuff going on under the surface. Are there any that you would highlight that have hidden or secret messages? Yeah, I think definitely. Um, what you instantly made me think of is <laughs> a very, it's presented very large in a book, but it, as, as you were mentioning, it looks very sort of innocuous and unremarkable. It's a, it's a, it's called Interior of a Kitchen, painted in 1815 by Martin Drolling. And it's a mother and two daughters. Uh, they're just sort of, uh, stitching, looking back at the artist with the window open. And you, you could think, what on earth could be the story here? But one thing you do notice about it is that the, the shade and the contrast is very striking. Um, they're very, very heavy darks. Um, and that's because of the unusual pigment that was used to paint it, which is known as mummy brown, which people might have heard of or mummier. Um, because the, bizarre fact is that when people were looking for a new kind of uh, pigment to really, you know, present a new kind of uh, weight to the dark tones, someone had the idea of grinding up the remains of ancient Egyptians and forming a pigment out of it. So you're left with this extraordinary legacy of paintings that are created with human remains. Um, and I think one of the strangest facts about it is that this uh, pigment continued to be used into the 20th century. And one of the challenges with the book was looking around and finding examples, because obviously no collection wants to hold that up, just as they didn't with, with the Madman's Library. I was looking for books that were bound in human skin. And that's a world of anthropodermic uh, bibliopagy that is almost entirely rumour. And there are, there are sort of claims of books that are bound in that way that turned out not to be. But this painting... Uh, in this chapter uh, is un unfortunately uh, uh, a key example of it. Another fairly innocuous, to me anyway, looking painting is is pretty famous. It's by John Singer Sargent and it's called Madame X. And it's essentially just a portrait of a beautiful woman, very, very pale, wearing this incredible black dress. Why has that made it into this book? Um, why did that cause such a stir? 
it's it's strange, isn't it? Because it's it's famous as being one of the most scandalous paintings in the history of art, and yet to our modern eyes, um, it seems almost conservative. But as you look closer, you see details like the bare shoulder um, and the the sort of the glow of the pale skin of this um, seems almost very sort of well you can imagine thinking looking at it from when it was a painter 1884 just how striking it is to see sort of bare arms bare shoulders and i just found it interesting that what is shocking and what is what is um completely abhorrent to contemporary attitudes changes so swiftly and yet this painting still has this reputation it has all this um magnetism and um I mean, it is it is stunning. You see the the blackness of the dress in, in contrast to the whiteness of the skin, and you can't take your eyes off it. But I but I was interested in works like that that caused ripples at the time that today have have sort of dissipated, and yet they still have that magical aura about them. And it was so scandalous because of the reputation of the sitter, or because of this bare shouldered seductiveness. A, a combination of both, and the. Yeah, so the sitter, who was um, Madame Gautreau, um, who was famous as a muse and was pursued um, aggressively by other artists. But the fact is that after the exhibition of this painting, when it caused such a shock, her reputation was ruined and even um, John Singer Sargent had felt like he had to leave leave France. And so I, I think it's just it's just a strange work to focus on because it carried all this story but yet we look at it today and it seems pretty harmless and flicking through the book it's all done chronologically but what's really intriguing when you look at it that way is that some of these artworks they really seem to transcend the era they were created in so some look shockingly modern i think for for the time that they were created in and i'm thinking particularly here of the ghost heads of franz xavier messerschmitt can you tell us a little bit about them? Perhaps you could start by describing them for us. Yes, you're right. It's almost impossible to to pinpoint when they might have been created because they could have been made yesterday. Um, they they look like novelties almost. But I think he was creating them in about 1770, um, this sequence of self-portrait busts that bear the most twisted, distorted angry, laughing, furious um, expressions, uh, each given um, strange names later by his um, relatives who inherited them and just really didn't know what to do with them. But the idea behind it is that his behavior changed notably um, as he started working on them and people realized that there are all these sort of contemporary references. They didn't have the terms for describing someone who was suffering from mental illness. So they just noticed that his behavior was developing quirks and he withdrew completely to work on this series. And his idea supposedly behind the series is that um, he was tortured with these leg pains from some undiagnosed illness. And his belief was that the spirits who designed and um, administrate the world were torturing him for discovering um, it's quite a complex theory, but discovering uh, a linked language between tweaking various parts of your body and having communication with the ethereal. Um, and so his belief was that if he could recreate the various expressions that he was making, he would have control over these torturous demons um, and he would he would kind of purge this pain from his body um, and and uh, spread the word of this 
technology that he believed the ancient Egyptians had discovered and then had been forgotten. So that sounds incredibly convoluted because that's how his mind was. But as you look at these um, statues, you, you do kind of suspect that there is some sort of strange convoluted story behind them. And uh, he intended to make over 60 of them, but he died before he could complete the series. So the ones in the book are the ones that I could find, but um, you could stare at them for hours. They're just endlessly fascinating. And if we're talking about spirits as an inspiration for art, I do want to ask you about spiritualist art of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, You look at various different examples. What can you tell us about its creation? Well, I think what you're looking at with spiritualist art is, I think it's surprising how early it started. I mean, one of the most famous names is Georgiana Houghton or Houghton, who was producing, uh, holding seances in 1859 and producing artworks that she claimed were being um, were based on descriptions being passed to her from the afterlife, um, and I think what's interesting about it is, it, that, is that um, medium artists are almost entirely women, um, and that their art varies so wildly to the point where it becomes quite abstract and we find that it was actually one of of several influences on the development of abstract art. Um, It's very highly sought after now by um, collectors Um, and it's it's referred to as sort of, it's part of art brute, this sort of crude outsider art. So it's not, it's interesting because it doesn't draw any influence supposedly from a previous artistic school or style. So what you're watching is um, something that's completely coming out of the the imagination of, of the artist, um, unfettered, apart from the influence of the, uh, the ghostly muse. Um, so there's quite, there's quite a long section of it on the book because I just kept it, I mean, how can you stop writing about something like that? Um, and I think my interest in it was, was um, based on um, discovering a book by a British um, medium artist called Ethel Le Rossignol, who produced a self-printed book of only a few copies in 1933 called A Goodly Company. Um, and you've never seen artwork like, like it before or since. Um, these visions of sort of hyper-coloured visions of um, naked figures dancing around in heaven, all very symmetrical, um, twisted rainbows and things. Um, so again, it's, it's just this book is really just an excuse to cram things like that into it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And in a way that, as, as I end the book saying, when we're looking at the paintings of artificial intelligence, that um, there is an aura of soul that emanates from, from all these artworks that um, as sophisticated as artificial uh, reproduction will, will get. episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe dive into the western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from prada you can shop for everything on your agenda whether it's a breezy zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright chloe blazer for brunch find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com as people have probably gathered by now Several pieces of these artworks, they're fairly disturbing, or you could find them disturbing. Which do you personally find some of the most unsettling? Uh, Yeah, it's a good question, because I have to make sure I do find things disturbing, and I don't just just completely remove myself from that and just find everything fascinating. Um, 
I, th- I think one that is is as gripping as it is disturbing. But I, I, to me, it's disturbing because it's so it's drawn, painted so casually. But there's um, a painting that was made in 1641, part of a series by Albert Eckert, this Dutch painter, um, and it was uh, part of a. Um, a period or a, a movement that I'd never considered that with the discovery of the new world, as well as the conquistadors roaming these new countries, as well as everyone looting and pillaging and destroying and spreading disease, part of this, um, this sort of front guard of Europeans stepping onto the shore, of course, were artists who were sent there to document this entirely new universe that had been discovered, who had no other motive other than to just capture the wonder that they felt. And so Eckhart was, was sent there to produce this um, enormous life-size portraits of the various um, natives that he um, encountered, each of a specific character. And the one that I've focused on in the book is called Tapuya Woman. Um, and it's a Brazilian native woman um, um, clad with very sort of tastefully placed uh, branches and leaves. Um, she's carrying a bucket on over a strap to her head. And there's beautiful Brazilian countryside rolling in the background. But when you look closely, you realize that in her right hand, she's actually holding another hand that doesn't seem to belong to anyone. And when you look in the backpack strapped to her head, you see that there's a human foot sticking out of it. And what you learn is that this is the first portrait ever produced of a cannibal um, and produced in a very sort of casual human way. And what I found so astounding is that these series of portraits were um, created to be hung in the magnificent dining hall of the uh, the Dutch uh, palace that was built there, but then were very swiftly sent back to Holland. And you can only imagine that perhaps, you know, seeing baskets of severed limbs wasn't very conducive to healthy appetite in their dinner guests. Yes, I would imagine so. Um, something you also include in the book are fake artworks. Why did they intrigue you? I think uh, fakes are very interesting because of the, the the staggering figures on just how many paintings on display in museums around the world uh, or how many stories you read in a newspaper about a local gallery uh, exhibiting a, a famous artist only for them to be found that nearly all of the paintings are fakes. In China, apparently, it's rife where, and even in England, your chances are that if you've wandered around even the great galleries, you've been looking at um, faked artworks. And I think there's something really remarkable about the fake artist because he knows he will never get credit. He's obviously doing it for the payment for the commission, but he's displaying or she is displaying a a comparable level of skill, maybe not in originality, but these are characters that just either were never known or just completely disappear into obscurity. And I quite like linking them to hoaxes, hoaxes or historical hoaxes are one of my favorite subjects. Um, And I remember reading years ago about, the artist Pierre Brasseau, um, who I think it was in Switzerland in 1967, um, where a local gallery um, uh, competition was won by this artist Pierre Brasseau, who it turned out was actually a monkey at the local zoo who'd been given uh, a paintbrush and canvas and a whole load of bananas for inspiration. And it was it was obviously part of this trend of satirizing modern art, of, of showing that even a monkey could do it. Um, but uh, I, I think it really helps sort of bring various areas of art that takes itself very seriously. I like seeing um, people having their sort of pretentiousness tweaked every now and again. 
Well, things do change, don't we? As we move into the 20th century and you get surrealism bursting onto the scene, for a book on on weird and wonderful art, surrealism, really, you're, you're spoilt for choice. How do you find the weirdest bits of art when the whole genre is is essentially weird. Exactly. I mean, it, you could quite happily produce multiple books just on the surrealists themselves. Um, so you have to take the same approaches with everything else. You have to think, well, what painting can represent that era, that movement generally? Um, what can you offer that perhaps people haven't read? Um, I mean, unless you're sort of very well read on the subject, but um, I think sometimes it's important to choose the image that everyone thinks of because quite often, um, for, you know, like I've, I've focused on Salvador Dali and, and the persistence of memory, which is an image you see on tea towels, on kitchen magnets, on posters, and you see everywhere. But quite often it's, it's sort of blown past. If it's part of popular culture, it's never deeply explored. Um, and I found it quite interesting to, you always, when you hear discussions of the surrealists, usually it's with a bit of tittering and isn't that strange, but you, you don't often deeply explore what it was they were doing and how, um, how much of it was so focused on communicating with the subconscious, um, looking at the language of dreams, and then realizing that actually dream art has this long tradition going all the way back to Albrecht Dura, um, making the first painting of a dream or a nightmare. And so with the surrealists, the temptation is to say, yeah, absolutely, look, look at this one, look at this, isn't it strange, isn't it strange? But actually, it's, it's much more fun to look at the different forms in which they try to communicate with with their subconscious um using that as their muse um the fumage technique using the smoke of a candle to form impressions on surfaces or the games they played like the exquisite corpse which is a piece of paper passed between them each one adding a detail which is now a party game but um what's so much fun about um what spending time with those kinds of groups is looking like dada looking at how they just aimed to completely destroy everything that had come before them and, and form their own way of doing things. And that's, of course, why you end up with artworks that look like nothing that's ever happened before. We've only looked really at a handful of the incredible artworks in this madman's gallery you've created. Um, and we could be here all day if we tried to talk about all of them. But are there any that we haven't talked about that you think are perhaps worth highlighting? I think, I think personally, in terms of the story that I really love, this is not a painting that you find in a lot of, um, in, well, in any sort of general histories that focus on the most important or the most revolutionary artworks, which is exactly why it should be, should be here. Because, um, I don't know if, if your listeners have heard of a painting called The Reply of the Zaporozhian Cossacks to Sultan Mehmed IV. Um, it's painted in 1880 and it's based on the story of when uh, Sultan Mehmed was basically pushing further and further um, into Russia and he was sending out demands for just submission to every um, group, every local sort of Cossack and he would send this enormous, um, pom enormously pompous letter uh, of an ultimatum saying, you know, things like, uh, uh, as the Sultan, son of Mohammed, brother of the sun and moon, grandson of Viceroy, and then demanding their surrender. Um, and the painting, it shows a group of these Cossacks who have just received this letter, find it utterly outrageous and have got together quite drunkenly to write the most insulting letter to send back to him in, in their sort of uh, slightly more sort of cruder form of poetry. Um, 
uh, and it's it became a sort of dinner party story that people in Russia would tell to each other. It's a very sort of patriotic story, but um, the the scene is just wonderful because everyone is dying of mirth as they write the letter that begins, uh, "O Sultan, Turkish devil and damned devil's kith and kin, companion to Lucifer himself, greetings." Um, and then it goes on and with words that I I probably am not allowed to repeat. But um, have a look in the book if you want to know more. And if you could have one of these artworks on your wall at home, which would you pick? Because a lot of these, I think, would be quite quickly ruled out if you didn't want to have many nightmares over the coming weeks. I think, to be honest, I one of the first sort of string of stories based on artworks that I put in the book was looking at the history of of holy men who have flown according to legend. And there's a painting in there called um, Joseph of Cupertino Takes Flight, uh, which was painted sometime in the 18th century by um, Ludovico Massanti. And it shows Joseph in his, um, in his friar's robes um, leaping into the air because according to legend at, at times of religious fervor, he would levitate for up to an hour and hover over the altar where he caused panic because people were terrified he was going, his robes were going to catch fire from the candles. But it's a magnificent painting and it's, it's actually why I don't, I don't know how well known this is, but he's the patron saint of airplane passengers because of the amount of levitations he took. So that section is looking back at that tradition and looking at the various flying monks that have appeared in art, like uh, the or the Blessed Ranieri, who um, frees the poor from a jail in Florence, is a is is a magnificent example. So I think uh, on my walls it'd be fun to have a flying monk because I think it offers the um, the dual appeal of of something beautiful, but also um, it would make me feel a lot safer about getting on a plane. I think. I think it raises a good point, doesn't it? That many of these. They may be weird, they may be disturbing, they may be surprising, but they are incredible pieces of art, a lot of these, aren't they? Absolutely. Um, yes, the, the, these are, they're all masterpieces. Um, even when you come to outsider art and you're looking at people who have had no training, you're looking at the postman who one day decided to collect pebbles to gradually build up his own palace with them every day, bit by bit. Um, each, is, each is a... It's a, a work by a master of his own particular school, even if it's a school of one. Your last entry in the book is an artwork called The Portrait of Edmund de Bellamy. And what makes this portrait particularly interesting is the fact that it was created by artificial intelligence. Can you tell us a bit more about its creation and what it might say about our ideas about art today? Yeah, I think there's been a lot in the headlines recently about artificial intelligence used to create original art that has been trained on other artists who feel that they haven't been getting the credit for for so sort of severely influencing these creations. I think one thing to say about it is that it's not technically artificial intelligence because that would um, require uh, a sense of self-awareness um, of independent thought. And we haven't reached that point. That point is in the future is referred to as a singularity. And we can't make any predictions of the future past that point because we have no idea of how things are going to sort of exponentially develop. So what you're looking at today um, with um, Edmund de Bellamy is you're looking at programs that um, I suppose comparable to the human mind in that they're fed a huge amount of information. They look for patterns. They look for... Um, uh, just sort of shapes that are common, and then they 
create a distorted version of that in an original form. And Edmund de Bellamy is, is famous because, not because it's the greatest painting art of, ever made by an artificial intelligence, but because it was the first that was sent to auction. And it, it didn't have very high hopes with it. Um, it was auctioned at Christie's in New York in 2018, and the estimate was seven to ten thousand. Uh, it sold for four hundred and thirty-two thousand five hundred dollars because there is a dealer saying that it's not about being the best; it's about being the first. When you own the first work, that's more important than just about anything that follows it. And it's it's not the most beautiful painting in the world. I don't, I don't want to disparage it. But what's so interesting about it is that um, its creators, which are this uh, the the art group that behind it, um, signed it with the algorithm um, written out of the the program that created it. So it's very tongue in cheek. It's very self. <laughs> ironically, it's very self aware. Um, but it's it, the book ends um, sort of discussing this and thinking, well, what does this mean for art? Are we sometime in the future going to walk past an art gallery that is going to be, perhaps it's already happened, where it's purely a, um, a display of artificially created artworks? Is that any threat to human creativity? And ultimately, I sort of end up saying, well, it's not really worth the canvas it's printed on because it it can't represent the the what art is to humans which is the experience the emotions um, that are processed it's not just artistic influence that we see in paintings it's the emotional influence it's the influence of memory um and perhaps we will but as yet i don't think we've we've seen that so finally what do you think that looking at some of history's weirdest bits of outside art could tell us about the history of art more generally i think what it does is it shows you just how depthless um, the human imagination has been um, over tens of thousands of years. Um, with some of the great masterpieces, a lot of what you're asked to admire in them is how they are the best examples of a particular style. But really with the paintings in this book, what you're, what you're invited to admire is the fact that these were all created by people with um, who felt no sense of boundary. And what you're seeing is the obsessions that occupied their own minds and how they're expressed um, on, on the page, on canvas, in a way that literature can't quite capture. And in a way that, as, as I end the book saying, when we're looking at the paintings of artificial intelligence, that um, there is an aura of soul that emanates from, from all these artworks that's... Um, as sophisticated as artificial uh, reproduction will will um, will get, is something that will never be able to be reproduced. Um, so you're you're just you're you're just looking at something, perhaps the most admirable aspect of of the um, of the human skill set and how it's been timeless. That was Edward Brooke Hitching. His book, The Madman's Gallery, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. And I also spoke to Edward about his last book, The Madman's Library, which was all about macabre manuscripts and unusual books. You can find that in your podcast feed by searching for Bizarre Books. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.